The novel was the most successful book of the 19th century, with the exception of the Bible. And it was an abolitionist book. It was designed to point out the horrors of slavery, and it certainly succeeded in that. And then it took on a nearly completely different life on the stage. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. What's it take to make a work of film scholarship or preservation happen? One person with an obsession. In this episode, I talked to Disney scholar J.B. Kaufman about the first in a new series of books about the Mouse House. Donna Hill tells us about a new edition of her book of photos of the most photogenic Rudolph Valentino. And David Pierce tells us about Universal's epic 1927 production of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which he rescued, though not from hounds while running across ice. Help save us, too. Subscribe at your favorite podcast service and leave us a rating or a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Disney gives free reign to his fancy, and all your favorites join in the songs and fun. Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, Mortimer Snurd, Little Luana Patton of Song of the South, and Jiminy Cricket, that cute little bug from Pinocchio, eavesdropping in. How would you like to hear me tell a story? Oh, I'd love it. Wouldn't you, Charlie? Well, I, uh, yeah. Disney's domination of the box office and concerns about its upcoming streaming services have many classic film fans worried. But here's some good Disney news. A new series of short books from Stuart Ng Books and the Hyperion Historical Alliance, with the full support of Big Mouse, devoted to scholarly explorations of more obscure parts of the Disney legacy. Silent and Disney film historian J.B. Kaufman, who we last talked to here about his book on Pinocchio, tells us about the series and the first book in it, which he wrote. It's on one of Walt's least known animated features, 1947's Fun and Fancy Free. The Hyperion Historical Alliance is uh, a group which I'm proud to say I'm, I'm a member of that uh, it's it's a group of Disney archivists and historians and writers that basically started off as just a, a, a loose-knit group of friends and in the last 10 years has grown and, and uh, kind of evolved into what is now an actual registered nonprofit um, that's dedicated to uh, preserving and disseminating and celebrating Disney history. And uh, the latest manifestation of that is, is a publication project, and we're starting off a series of monographs. 
And the idea of the monographs is that they they are kind of a halfway house between uh, self-published books and the giant art books that you see so often. You know, I, I think there's there's of course there's a, a place, a great place for the big. Uh, large-scale Disney art books. But the thing about big books is that they tend to be about big subjects. Uh, you know, because, of, uh, I mean, it makes sense that a publisher doesn't want to take on uh, a major commitment like that unless they're reasonably sure that it's going to have a wide appeal to a lot of readers. Uh, but that leaves a lot of smaller subjects, which, to those of us who love Disney, uh, would love to see covered too. And the idea is that the monographs can take, can each one take one of those um, lesser known subjects, but really delve into that subject. And uh, we we think that the, the time has come for a series like that. So uh, we're kicking it off with uh, the first one, which I have the privilege of having written. And it's about the making of the Disney feature Fun and Fancy Free. Oh, I thought it was going to be uh, The Cat from Outer Space, which I know is an old Well. We, we might we might have to wait a while for that one. All right. Well, yeah. tell me about Fun and Fancy Free. Uh, actually, tell everyone about it because I think if you if you had to go for the you know one of the most obscure things made by Walt and you know during his life that would have to be high up there. Fun and Fancy Free is one of the group of post-war Disney films that we now call the package features. Uh, they weren't called that at the time, but it's become kind of a convenient uh, pigeonhole for them. Uh, in in latter days. And the idea of the package features was that you could take several smaller components and put them together into one film. Uh, In the case of Fun and Fancy Free, there are just two of them. Uh, One is Bongo, the story of a circus bear who accidentally winds up in, in the wild and has to learn how real bears live in the wilderness. And the other was the story of Mickey and the Beanstalk. And both of those story ideas actually started out before World War II or before America got into World War II um, as standalone features in their own right. Um, but and, and then they got shelved along with a lot of other entertainment uh, production at, at the time that the U.S. did get into the war. Um, while, the, while the Disney studio concentrated on training films and other other war-related production. But at the end of the war, they both came off the shelf, and at that point, it was decided to put them together into one feature-length film. And at that point, the studio also created a third framing story featuring Jiminy Cricket to tie those two elements together. So what you wound up with was a really kind of varied, colorful uh, entertainment package and for good measure, they added a couple of live-action performers, Dinah Shore and Edgar Bergen, both of whom were very, very popular at the time. So you get a real um, colorful mixture of, of entertainment in Fun and Fancy Free. Very 1940s-style entertainment uh, in that it's popular stars of the time. So with the package films, I mean, to us it seems so obvious that Disney's you know the, the the foundation of Disney's classic period are these feature length versions of various famous tales from Pinocchio to Cinderella to you know Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and things like that eventually 
I guess the early ones after Snow White had not done that well. Is that why they saw the the package films as kind of a safer bet? I think that was part of it. Um, I, I think actually there were several factors. Uh, that was one. Uh, there's also the fact that it was just plain more expensive to make uh, a, a feature that that told one single integrated story from beginning to end. Uh, and at the end of the war, the Disney studio, frankly, was strapped and, and wasn't able to take on a really expensive production like that. And I think partly it was just Walt. I think I think that Walt had a real aversion to repeating himself. So he had made these great pre-war features uh, that that were that kind of film, and he had and he'd done them so beautifully. I think that he was really looking for other showcases for animation, and and experimenting with the form. So so I think that was part of it too. But clearly, uh, the package features, they all made back their cost and so on, but none of them was uh, a huge hit. And when he was able to produce another feature that, that kind of <clears throat> followed the format of, of the pre-war films, that was Cinderella, and that one was a tremendous hit. So it was a pretty clear indication of, of uh, a good direction to go after that. Fun and Fancy Free, as a feature, was never reissued like like so many others were. But both Bongo and Mickey and the Beanstalk had a long afterlife. They they both they both turned up in, in various forms. In fact it's it's interesting to see uh the different uses that they made of, of Mickey and the Beanstalk because uh in its original form in Fun and Fancy Free, uh Edgar Bergen and his and his dummies are very uh, intricately interwoven with the animation throughout the story. They, they're a big part of it. Um, but by the time the film was repurposed for television, uh, Edgar Bergen uh, apparently was, was no longer as big a star. He had been a tremendous star in the 1940s. But by the time they they repurposed the film for television, uh, they were able to, to completely take him out and, and uh, substitute... Uh, Sterling Holloway, who didn't appear on screen, but he was he was the voiceover narrator of the film. And then later on, uh, they completely redid it again, and this time uh, Ludwig von Drake was was the narrator. <laughs> then you'll meet Bongo, the daring young bear of the circus. Let Dinah Shore tell you all about him. As he daringly climbed to the top of the tent. Then with a wave to the crowd, he would gracefully plunge 300 feet into a wet sponge. How does this film advance Disney animation to your mind in the time that it was made? What were they doing that was new and different for them? Um, that's, that's a really good question. I, I think part of it, Bongo, is the only Disney film ever based on a Sinclair Lewis story, which, uh, which I found really remarkable. When I started researching this book, I, uh, I, I took a real interest in that. And uh, and sure enough, I, I found the original publication, and it is heavily adapted for the film. But the basic idea of, of the circus pair who accidentally winds up in the wild—that's that's absolutely it. And, and the major characters are all there. Uh, so it's it's uh, a children's story, as as Sinclair Lewis would write a children's story. <laughs> uh, See, now you're giving me this vision of a, a Disney version of Babbitt. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, that's it. It was uh, it, it was uh, a, a real departure, um, and it was 
it was a departure for them to combine a story like this with the input of a popular entertainer, in this case, Dinah Shore. I, I, think, I think that in itself uh, is pretty fascinating because you get a little time capsule, uh, you know, as, as you say, uh, kind of giving the sense of popular entertainment at, at that point in the 1940s because uh, Dinah Shore uh, had become really popular, especially during the war. And uh, she was... She was, you know, strictly a uh, a contemporary phenomenon at that time, and and it's interesting to see Disney embracing uh, that kind of uh, element in their films because they had, in, in many of them, they had made a point of making them as timeless as possible. Right. It's a swell story with your old pal Mickey Mouse celebrating his twentieth anniversary in motion pictures with Goofy and good old Donald Duck. You will see them climb a magic beanstalk find the magic castle, and meet that hilarious new Disney dope, Willie the Silly Giant. In the case of Mickey and the Beanstalk, in, in some ways it's even more fascinating because uh, in 1941, when they were developing that story as a standalone feature, they actually did get started with the animation. And then uh, and, and some of it was completed uh, at the time that the film was shelved. So when they reactivated it after the war, uh, of course, there had been a considerable amount of turnover in the animation department. So they were starting with the kind of the, the foundation of, of the work that had already been done and then building on onto that. But because it was a slightly different crew of artists, what you're getting is a patchwork of, of great Disney animation from before and after the war. Uh, and, and some of the artists involved are some of the best who ever worked on any of the Disney films. So that I find really fascinating. And, uh, it was, it was uh, a lot of fun to sort of break that down and investigate, um, you know, which, which, uh, parts of the story were being, uh, presented in which part of the film. Of the various package films, obviously the one that stands apart is Fantasia, which is you know easily the most artistically ambitious. Otherwise, I don't know exactly what all you'd put in that category, but I think of something like uh, Melody Time as being kind of a pop music of the day version on Fantasia and still fairly artistically adventurous. Do you feel like there's anything in Fun and Fancy Free that quite compares to that? I, I agree with you that, that both Melody Time and uh, an earlier one, Make My Music, um, are, uh, if, if you had to describe them to someone who'd never seen them, you could describe them as Fantasia, but with popular music. Uh, uh, Fun and Fancy Free isn't, isn't that, but I think it's, it's not trying to be that. The idea of making a package film with, with just two major uh, parts to it, and, and they did another one of those, too. They made one called uh, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which, of course, is uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and, and Wind in the Willows. Right. And um, I, I personally think that that is a really, really interesting uh, format. It, it's, it's, it's like 
it's like a double feature combined in one feature. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, and it, it's uh, something that wasn't unknown in, in live action films either at the time. You had a certain number of those kind of uh, anthology films. Um, you know, the O. Henry's Full House and uh, what is it? Three Cases of Murder based on Somerset Mom stories. So, yeah, I think isn't Dead of Night one of those? Two? Oh, yeah, it's, sure. It's, Dead of Night. Excellent example. Yeah. Yeah, so so yeah, you're right, and it's and um, I don't know whether that reflects something about the tenor of the times, but it it might, you know, it's it's uh, it was it was the post-war years, and and I don't know, maybe maybe people's attention spans were challenged or <laughs> something. So uh, so yeah, the idea of of combining uh, a, a number of different pieces in one evening's entertainment, I, I think uh, that you're, you're right. There was, there was something of a, of a precedent for that. So what else is uh, this series going to be about? Do you know any of the other titles that are on the way? Well, yeah. Matter of fact, uh, I have the privilege of being one of the series editors. So I get to see all these things in development. Okay. And uh, the second one is in the works now. And it's, and, and again, um, this is a group of people who, uh, are are fascinated uh, as a group with the whole spectrum of Disney history. For me, it's all about the movies, but of course, for a lot of people, they're, they're you know the the focus is more on uh, other aspects of Disney. And uh, the the one that's in the works now is about Disneyland, but not the whole subject of Disneyland. It's it's about Disneyland 1959. So it means the the new uh, attractions that were introduced at the park in 1959, and specifically the the monorail, the Matterhorn, and the submarines, which collectively really kind of ramped up <laughs> the, the the whole experience of going to the park. You know, it, it had opened four years earlier, but but those attractions really kind of uh, made made a whole new experience out of it, and uh, and this story is being written by Todd James Pierce and Joe Campana, who uh, are both really great guys, but they're also really knowledgeable about uh, the history of the park at that point. And uh, so I've, I've seen some of the uh, some of the text and some of the illustrations coming together for that, and I think it's going to be a real standout. Our, our plan is two per year, and that is, that is our... Um, arrangement with the Disney company. And I must say, we are not uh, officially part of the Disney company, but they have been really, really uh, cooperative and, and gracious about working with us on these. So, uh, so for example, this first one, I'm really proud of, of this first one on Fun and Fancy 3 uh, because it is so beautifully designed. And I have to um, to send out a, a shout out to Steve Reeser, the designer, who I think is just insanely talented and has done an amazing job with this. Um, he, he he really, I mean, I wrote the book, but he really made it sparkle. And <laughs> uh, and um, and a lot of those illustrations, in fact, the great majority of them, are from the Disney Studios' own collections. They're from the photo library and and the. Uh, the animation research library. So, um, um, so that is, um, a, a big, a big factor in these things. And, and we are very, very grateful to, uh, the Walt Disney company for 
uh, for supporting this idea as much as they have. We have some things lined up for, for the fairly near future. There's one on the Disney artist Hank Porter, who uh, you may know is, is probably best known for the many, many uh, military insignia that he designed uh, during the war for the various branches of the armed services. Um, but he, it turns out that he did a lot of other things for Disney besides that. He, he was, I think, Walt at one point described him as a one-man art department. And uh, so we have a biography of him coming up. Um, Didier Guez, uh, who you may know, he's, 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 uh, he's done some really outstanding work of his own. And he is the president of, of the Hyperion Historic, Historical Alliance. He's working on what I think is going to be a fascinating monograph about uh, the origins of the true life adventures. And uh, he has dug up some really, really fascinating material to show uh, how Walt's thinking and the thinking of some of the other uh, writers at the studio and so on uh, was evolving during the 1940s leading up to what became the True Life Adventures. And uh, to me, that's that's a pretty fascinating story, too. And uh, I've embarked on another one of my own, <laughs> which is about another package feature. It's about Make Fine Music. Okay. So, so we have a, a pretty varied um, menu coming up. And and again, some of these some of these ideas uh, may be reshuffled and, and new ones introduced. But but the idea is to cover, as I say, a really broad spectrum of Disney history. I think we tend to stick to um, the period during Walt's lifetime, but that's not necessarily a hard and fast rule either. There there may be you know more recent uh, aspects of history covered in this series too. So there's hope for the cat from outer space, is what you're saying. Yeah, I wouldn't write it off. (laughs) (laughs) There will be links in the show post at nitrateville.com for the making of Walt Disney's Fun and Fancy Free by J.B. Kaufman from Stuart Ng Books and the Hyperion Historical Alliance. J.B. also recently did one of those big Disney books, co-authoring Tashin's Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse, The Ultimate History, which Amazon tells us weighs 12.4 pounds. We'll link to that, too. Nitrateville member Donna Hill uses the screen name Rudy Fan, and she's got the evidence to back it up. She's been a diligent collector for many years of photos of one of the greatest and best remembered stars of the silent era, Rudolph Valentino. She first published her collection and photos contributed by other collectors in 2010's Rudolph Valentino, The Silent Idol, His Life and Photographs. And now there's a revised version, with hundreds of pictures from every phase of his life, revealing both the star and the private man. I spoke with her at her home in San Francisco. I'm guessing this is uh, an obsession you've had for a little while. Tell me about that. Oh, gosh, this is a long, long story. Um, I discovered Valentino, like so many other people discovered silent films, by watching the series that was broadcast on PBS in the 70s. And I first saw The Eagle and Blood and Sand. And I don't want to say I was smitten, but I was like, wow, 
<laughs> who is this guy? I, at that point, I was trying to read everything that I could find, which there were a couple of biographies out there, um, including the uh, Irving Shulman, and uh, I don't think the Alexander Walker book had come out yet. Um, but of course, the first book that really struck me because it was so visual, of course, was Hollywood Babylon, the book that everyone loves to hate, um, and rightly so for many reasons, uh, but it had um, some great photographs. There's a photograph um, that heads that chapter on Valentino, which is uh, Valentino and his secretary, Margaret Neff. And I looked at that picture and I thought, who is this person? Because the the person in the photograph was nothing like what was described in the Hollywood Babylon chapter. And it made me want to learn more. Yeah, it is sort of it's sort of like, you know, the pictures of Leslie Howard with glasses or something. You know, the the studious real person is is completely different from who he becomes when the camera turns on a character. Exactly. And in reading about Valentino's life and his film career, uh, and his film career at that time really got no respect whatsoever. Um, I mean, if you based it only on seeing The Sheik, I, I guess that would probably be um, natural. Thankfully, in the days of today where we have you know DVDs and streaming and film festivals that show films on a regular rotation, you can see that there was real talent behind all of that. And, you know, the chic was more of an anomaly than it was the norm. The chic was done, you know, very much not tongue in cheek, you know, based on the pot boiler, but the sequel was so much better and filmed with such panache and style. And I think a lot of that also had to do with, you know, the um, scenario by Francis Marion, but it's just a really well-made film. You said you saw blood and sand in the Eagle and then you started collecting the pictures? Well, when I first saw the films, I was something like 13 or 14. Um, so I, di I didn't start collecting until uh, around 1978 uh, when I was 18 and able to drive and go to, you know, the what doesn't really exist anymore, but um, what were called paper shows. The good old days of a paper show where you could, you know, buy vintage stills for pennies. And that's how it started. The first photograph I bought was actually a candid photo. It's it's in the book. Um, it's Valentino and Clarence Brown on the set of uh, The Eagle, um, standing in between some of the um, target dummies. And that's that's what started it. And um, very early on, um, with one of my dearest friends who also collected, you know, and this is back in 78, 79, 1980, it was like, someday I'd like to do a book just using, you know, candid photos or as many candid photos as possible. Yeah, so tell me what you see as the difference between Valentino in the candid shots and Valentino in studio stills. Well, studio stills, you know, they, they were used to market the stars. So many of them were, you know, they're, they're posed for purpose. And uh, not that they're not unattractive. They certainly are. The camera loved him just as they, the camera loved just about anyone from that era. Uh, but the candid shots are much more natural. Um, they show, depending on if they're shots um, from the studios, there is some humor. Uh, it shows how relaxed making a film could be. Um, there was not a lot of pretense. And uh, and then you know there are the other candids, which are you know arriving or departing train stations or you know about to embark on a ship. Which show Valentino and his, uh, let's say, Natasha Rumbova, his second wife, in a more natural habitat. And I just find it very appealing. 
going back to, you know, say like Hollywood Babylon or the earlier biographies where, um, depending on which ones you read, some of them are really dreadful um, and not filled with facts. Um, he was often viewed just by the, the cinema image alone. You know, the chic, the slick-haired um, matador, the, the gaucho in Four Horsemen. And his own personal life was so very different. And that's what's brought out in the candid photos, I think, because he certainly enjoyed the life that being a, a relatively wealthy film star enabled him to be. But he also, in in thinking about it, had a, had a relatively simple life. His needs were not extravagant, although he loved extra, extravagant things. Um, but he was much more than a simple peasant from Italy, but an educated man who enjoyed sport, enjoyed his cameras and tinkering with, you know, anything mechanical and certainly enjoyed his cars and drove way too fast, even though he was, uh, had terrible vision. So, um, <laughs> I got distracted by the idea of a nearsighted Valentino. Does he have, does he have glasses in any of these uh, photos? I, I have notice. yet to see, I have yet to see a photo of him in glasses. There is one photograph, um, taken of him by James Abbey. It is at their house in Whitley Heights and it's, he's sitting in the dining room and behind him is a China cabinet. And on top of the China cabinet is a pair of glasses. Ah. <laughs> I, I recall Nita Aldi in an interview who was always, always a hoot, um, saying that, you know, the reason he looked so intently at his leading ladies was because he couldn't see them. <laughs> so you first did this book uh, in 2010. Yes. And uh, so tell me about the first edition and what's different here. Well, the first edition, um, I really wanted to do a nice coffee table book um, and had a couple of almost contracts with publishers. And that just didn't pan out because of the, the cost. And so I ultimately decided to self-publish. And at that point, the best option was using blurb.com which I have no complaints about. The book was beautiful. I wanted it to be very pretty, which it was. It was also, unfortunately, inordinately expensive. And not that I'm doing this for money, because I made almost no money on that book. Right. Um, all, of pro all of the profits went to blurb. But they kept raising the price, and because their um, price structure was via page count, I had to limit the size of the book. And then... Once I published it in 2010, the price went up three times, I think, before they finally settled and said, okay, we're not going to raise the price anymore because people were complaining, yeah. including, including me. And as much as I was very happy with the book, um, to get a hardback of it, it's $100. Right. And I think that's just nuts. My, my reason for doing the second edition was because, one, um, I wanted to get a, a less expensive edition out there, and two... I had a lot more photographs that I either that didn't make the cut in the first edition because of the page limitations, or I'd also acquired because I still collect not as much as I did, you know, 20 years ago. But I still, if I see something that I think is very rare or compelling, I buy it. So that was the uh, impetus to to do the second edition. And so, what does it go for now? Uh, thirty-five dollars. Okay, a very very reasonable price for for a five hundred page book. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And you're also working on a, another Valentino project. It seems like you've hinted. Uh, what's tell me about that? 
My other Valentino project, which uh, at, at this time is sitting, it's going to sit on the back burner for a bit, is um, a book chronicling the history of his film career. Okay. Um, that's not something that's been done. And uh, there's there's so much material out there that wasn't available or is more easily searchable these days, thanks to Lantern Media and uh, having newspapers and such digitized and searchable. Um, I think I can uh, come up with something that will be a much nicer history of his film career. Yeah, because um, it seems like, I mean, just even looking through this, I kept finding titles that I, I don't think I had ever run across before. And I'm sure a lot of those are he just has brief bits in this or that movie. But he's kind of somebody who came down to a few films made relatively late in his career when he actually has quite a few more roles than we're used to seeing. It's not just Blood and Sand and the two Sheik movies. Well, I mean, you can start with uh, The Married Virgin, which was um, 1917, which was a very lucky break for him in one way and very unlucky in another that um, the distribution deal on it fell through and it wasn't released for the most part until after he went on strike in 1922. But you can see in that film that he came to the table in Hollywood with considerable talent. I mean, he was very, very much more naturalistic than a lot of actors at the time. He um, switched between that film, which was a major role, and then going back into, you know, smaller parts, bits, because he was more or less typecast as a villain. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. You mentioned that in the film, that his ethnic looks tended to get him typecast as a villain, except every once in a while he'd turn up as, you know, the guy in the arrow shirt going to college from the, from the Wasp family or something. It's like, wait a minute, how'd that yeah, happen? The, 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 um, the two, two universal films he did with uh, Carmel Myers, A Society of Sensation and All Night. Um, you know, he plays a wealthy society man in The Society of Sensation, and then in All Night he's, you know, Richard Bradley, yeah. Carmel's fiancé. <laughs> And and that's also that's a comedy, and it's uh, it's quite charming. It's not complete, but it, it does have it does have its fun moments. You know, an, another story that which leads into my research on Dorothy Gish, that um, she recognized Rudy's talent and uh, requested him for a film later on when they were at Triangle, um, and she tried to get D.W. Griffith to cast him. Griffith just couldn't recognize that there was something there. And he just basically, you know, blew him off. Yeah. Neil Hamilton is hot enough for moviegoers. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's interesting that then he, his big breakthrough, I guess, is really in uh, the Rex Ingram Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which is the most Griffithian of movies made by other people, as far as I can see. I mm -hmm. mean, it's very much in the in the model of Birth of a Nation and things like that of, you know, that sort of epic family story that in includes a war and, and all of that. Yes. And um, also, I think, uh, to give all due credit to June Mathis, who, you know, wrote the scenario and was there on set with Ingram and supported the cast, uh, more imp most importantly, Valentino, throughout the production. And... Uh, you know, they they knew what they had. I agree. So what do you see? I mean, do you see a story in the pictures as they go? I was looking through them and he's he goes off on the dance tour, which is odd. He goes through some scandal, looks a little haggard at some of those points. Uh, at one point, he suddenly has a beard, which is a sure sign that uh, there's a double chin behind it. Uh, 
There, I don't think there was a double chin behind it, but um, he's a little rounder faced for sure. He was he'd just come from vacation in Europe, so I think he'd been eating well. Yeah, I tried to use the photos chronologically to um, tell his story. Um, talking about the the dance tour in 1923, um, that was you know by necessity that he had to make, earn money. I mean, he um, you know he he got on his high horse about wanting to make better films. And went on strike. The studio um, in, issued a in, court-ordered injunction to prevent him from performing on stage or on screen anywhere. So that, there, that precluded him from making a living. He was terribly in debt, among other things, because the studio loaned him money to buy his house. And he was a spendthrift. When he had money in his pocket, he spent it. Uh, the tour was a godsend, and, and it was exhausting. Um, if you look at the dates of the tour, in a period of four months, they you know, crossed the United States several times by train, one-night stands in Canada as well, and uh, they performed in tents, armories, ballrooms, anything that was not a theater. While this was going on, of course, Valentino, who could hardly be called a good businessman, um, <laughs> um, the studio was negotiating with him and basically offered him what he wanted in addition to a huge salary bump. And he turned it down and continued with the tour. And then um, by the end of, at the, after the end of the tour, um, he had had a new manager who was um, one of the people who uh, hired him or approached him about the tour in the first place, who became his business manager. And they nego- negotiated with uh, Adolf Zucker and Lasky and got him a new contract. The tour seemed really interesting to me because it was sponsored by, what was that, something lava. Oh, mineral lava. Mineral lava, which was what? Um, it was uh, beauty products. Okay. Um, they had, you know, face oils, creams, all that kind of stuff. I actually have a, a bottle, an empty bottle of something floating around in here somewhere. <laughs> uh, um, and one of the trophies from the... Uh, the Baltimore winner of the local contest. I have her trophy. Oh, wow. So they sponsored it. And while the various reviews from the tour, people were disappointed in some cases because the Valentinos were on stage for such a short time. Uh, but the crowds were amazing. The, the prices for the, for the tour itself, you know, they, they ranged anywhere from, I think, 50 cents to up to $2.50, which was a considerable sum of money. Right. Um, so it was, you know, hugely profitable. He, he was earning, he and Natasha were earning about $7,000 a week plus, you know, all of their travel in, in the Pullman car, um, luxury Pullman car, by the way, that they traveled in. Um, and I think for him, it was probably very interesting because he got to see the public and they got to see him. Yeah, it's interesting. It struck me as in some ways, it's almost like if they had gone out with a patent medicine show. And yet it's also very modern in that so many acts now, it's, you know, particularly in music, it's it's less about your record sales than what you can do on the road. And that's where you have to make your money and finding sponsorship deals and all those, all those kinds of things. Yeah, because, it, and you're right, it is, it was much like a medicine show because, you know, they, they came on, they did their little dance exhibition, and then he would do his pitch for the product. And then they would have the dance contest. 
which he would judge. So he gets his, he's back on his Hollywood career, uh, makes things like the Eagle and Monsieur Beaucaire and, and, uh, son of the Sheik, And then he dies. And that always leaves the question, what would Valentino have done in the thirties? And, you know, it's funny, you, you mentioned the same kind of people that always occur to me when I think about that. Uh, you know, I think you say Eric Rhodes and Victor Varconi and some of those other people who tended to play the, the somewhat ripe uh, continental lovers or whatever they were. And the people who had been typecast as that, like George Raft and Ricardo Cortez, quickly figured out to go back to being American gangsters instead. So who knows what he would have done? Well, there there is the difference um, because he... From all I can figure out, he, he still maintained a relatively you know, healthy Italian accent. Um, and I, you know, people ask me this question all the time and I always answer the same way. I, I think, you know, by the time the mid thirties had come around, he probably would have retired from the screen. Um, even though he would have been relatively young because his, his style of parts were not in fashion. I mean, you know, John Gilbert's same romantic persona did him in, in the early thirties because it was just not fashionable. It was laughable at that point. My personal, you know, fantasy about Valentino surviving into the talk era would have been, what if he had been cast as Dracula? Yeah. I think that would have been an entirely different thing. Would have been great. I it, mean, as much as I love Lugosi, no, no dissing Lugosi here, but I think right. his Dracula would have been an entirely, you know, much more like the stage Dracula. Yeah, on Earth 2, where Valentino <laughs> gets the role uh, and goes on to have, have a long career in horror. And, uh, you and know. Ending, ending up at Re- Republic as, you know, the villain in uh, Captain Marvel versus Q-Ball or something. <laughs> yeah, the, the East Side kids meet the vampire Rudolph Valentino. I, I don't know. I mean, I, he, he had, had expressed a desire that he wanted to go beyond, behind the camera. As well, he was much more interested in what was going on behind the camera than in front of it. Yeah, I I think he, especially by the time he got around to making the Eagle and the Son of the Sheik, he was very much aware that his his days as a you know romantic lead were not long for this life. Even though at that point he was only thirty one. Right. Um, I think he was pretty self aware that this this was not something that would last. Although the uh, he does have that comedic touch that could have carried him into certain sorts of screwball roles, you know. You can, who knows? I mean, he maybe he could have made that transition, and it would just be you know Rudolph Valentino and Irene Dunn in I Married My Wife or something like that. You know? it, it it is quite likely because that's one thing, um, and I'm glad you brought that up that people don't really get or they forget that he really was good in comedy. There's ample opportunity for it. I mean, in Beaucaire, um, there are sequences that are very funny. Same thing with The Eagle, and there's plenty of humor in Son of the Sheik. And there's some lightness in, in between in The Four Horsemen, where you can see that, yes, he could play comedy. All right, so one picture in the book. Tell me a picture. I'll, I'll excerpt it in the, in the show post to give people the flavor of the book. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> There's over 500 photos in here. Um, um, I, I think you could probably pick just about any of them from, say, the European vacation chapter. Because okay. um, it shows him, you know, relaxed and happy. Probably, I'm going to pick like page 280, which is uh, Valentino at the Coliseum with his nephew. Okay. 
I was wondering about uh, him. I mean, so this was a nephew that he met on a trip back home, and they seem to have bonded pretty well, as, as uncles and nephews tend to do. Uh, do you know anything more about his later life? Um, oh, yes. Um, his, his name uh, was um, Gene Valentino. That's what his professional name was. He, um, his father, after Valentino passed, came back and pretty much stayed here to deal with the estate, which was a ginormous mess. Um, and his brother Alberto ended up working for Fox. And I th- I'm pretty sure he was in accounting there. Um, and then Gene grew up and, like his uncle, was fascinated with mechanical things, and he became a sound man. Ah. And you can see his credits. I think he's got some on the Twilight Zone. Um, he won an Emmy for something, which I don't remember. But he also had his side business called Valentino Electronics, and he created stere- custom stereo equipment. Um, and as far as I know, there's one that he built for Frank Sinatra that is still in Sinatra's old uh, Palm Springs house. Anything else that you want to say about how looking at 500 pictures of Valentino, uh, what you got from that? Well, I think it might uh, change your opinion, at least that he was uh, a little smarter than people give him credit for and a much more interesting guy than just, you know, some, some guy who rides in wearing a burnoose on a horse. Not that that entertainment is not fun. It is. But I was just more interested in seeing the person behind that, what made him tick. And that's what I hope to accomplish with this book. Donna Hill's new edition of Rudolph Valentino, The Silent Idol, His Life and Photographs, is out now. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com, as well as the photo from page 280, so you can see it for yourself. Uncle Tom's Cabin is still remembered as the best-selling novel of the mid-19th century, and one that changed northern attitudes about slavery in the run-up to the Civil War. It lasted as a popular stage hit well into the 20th century. Along the way, though, it picked up a reputation as a sentimental melodrama, with Uncle Tom as a figure of black submission that Harriet Beecher Stowe's book does not deserve. The most lavish film version of the tale was made by Universal in 1927, directed by Harry A. Pollard, with Margarita Fisher, Virginia Gray, the African-American actor James B. Lowe as Uncle Tom, and George Siegman, who had played in blackface in The Birth of a Nation, as the brutal slave boss Simon Legree. A reported $2 million production, its restoration and release on video in 1999 was shepherded by David Pierce, who Nitrateville Radio spoke to last year about King of Jazz. This is a new Blu-ray, but your involvement really was 20 years ago with this title. Right. So I both um, 
did research on the film because I found it absolutely fascinating and turned that into an article. And I came across uh, elements on it and, and tracked down the rights and bought the rights to it so it could go back into distribution. So I've kind of done both the academic side and the commercial side. I think everybody has an image of Uncle Tom's Cabin, so maybe we should start kind of with the the novel and the play, uh, which eventually proved to be two fairly different things, I think, and the movie has certain elements of both in it, so maybe give us a little rundown on that. Well, the novel was the most successful book of the 19th century, with the exception of the Bible, and it was an abolitionist book. It was designed to point out the horrors of slavery, and it certainly succeeded in that. And then it took on a nearly completely different life on the stage. And the stage versions had um, a much longer time with the public consciousness and also reached many more people than the book did. The book is very readable. Um, It's really an enjoyable read today compared to a lot of other 19th century novels. And then the play um, was able to evolve depending on the needs of the time. So before the Civil War, it was an abolitionist story. If it was done um, playing in the South, it was more of a minstrel story, talking about the life of uh, the slaves and the, the runaway slaves. And then after the Civil War, it again morphed to become more almost a vaudeville show where different um, uh, theatrical groups would put it on, emphasizing different elements, um, either the comedy elements or the uh, thrill elements of the the story. And there's a wonderful uh, 1929 Bessie Love picture made for MGM called The Girl in the Show, which is about the life of a um, a Tom company, people who spent their entire careers on stage playing in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, I mean, the the new Blu-ray includes two earlier versions, one from 1910, Vitagraph, another one from 1914, World Film. I don't really know that studio. Uh, but obviously a popular tale. Um, copyright did not uh, have much to do with it back then, so anybody who wanted to take a whack at it could. Um but it, it probably hadn't been done. I assume 1914 is about the last time it had been done until Universal just decided to do it as a big production. Yeah, I believe there was a 1918 um, uh, version with Marguerite Clark that was released by Paramount. Okay. But you're right. It wasn't. It's a, a tale that fit very much that period of the teens and seemed much less relevant when you got into the 1920s. Uh, so why? Carl Emley went to spend a lot of money on Uncle Tom's Cabin at that point. Well, if you think about the universal that we're familiar with, it's these big big pictures, the Eric von Stroheim films of, of um, uh, blind husbands and foolish wives, and then starting with um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, you're, we're looking really at uh, the company producing these large-scale adaptations of very popular books. So they did uh, three films based on books by Victor Hugo, which was Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Les Miserables, which was an import of a French picture, and The Man Who Laughs, Phantom of the Opera that we're all familiar with, and uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin actually fits in that 
approach very well in terms of Universal having one or two very big productions each year, and the rest of what they put out was largely uh, uh, B pictures and personality pictures. Star vehicles, you mean? Yeah, yeah. But um, whereas a company like MGM might make 10 pictures a year at the scale of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Universal had to really struggle to get out one picture of that scale. And the problem was that while uh, Irving Thalberg was very good at producing pictures on a budget, Carl Lemley and his various production heads were not. So they ended up spending far too much on these A pictures. And we're all familiar with the fact that Phantom of the Opera was basically shot twice. You know, there was a premiere version, and then they put it back into production. And uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin was the same thing, where it was in production, you know, for uh, a year and a half. Because they didn't have the cost controls uh, for these big pictures, and they didn't really have the infrastructure for it or the financing. And as um, my co-author James Layton and I went into for King of Jazz from 1930, producing two big pictures at the same time, King of Jazz and All Quiet on the Western Front, the company uh, came very close to running out of cash because they had so much money tied up in pictures that were awaiting release. So this one, they hired a director named Harry Pollard, uh, who had been a stage actor and, in fact, had played Uncle Tom in a Tom company. Uh, and his approach to the story is a little disconcerting. You read that he's he was from the South, and he says things to the press about how, well, I'm going to show you how it really was back then. So Harry Pollard means very little to any of us today, but he was uh, Universal's top director for a while. He started out with these leather pusher comedies that starred uh, Reginald Denny, and both of them then moved into... Uh, features. Reginald Denny was a light comedian, not a Harold Lloyd type comedian, but more of a of a, someone who played light comedies um, like Harold Lockwood or uh, Monty Blue. And those films were hits. And um, because it looked as if Harry Pollard could turn anything into a successful property, when he went to Carl Emley about his dream project, which was to make a huge production of Uncle Tom's Cabin starring his wife, Margarita Fisher. Lemley was open to it, and eventually uh, Pollard wore down Lemley by convincing him that this was a picture that could be popular in the South as well as the North, that everyone knew Uncle Tom's Cabin and those characters, so it was pre-sold, and that the big sequences that uh, people wanted to see had never been properly staged on film and that uh, coming to see the ice flows, Eliza's chase, being chased by the bloodhounds over the ice flows, would bring in both the small town audiences, which Universal um, did very well with, as well as the big city audiences. And he convinced um, uh, Lemley that he should go with it. But they didn't have a final script. The script was uh, far too rambling and they didn't figure out exactly how they were going to sequence the picture. So if you remember from uh, Ben-Hur, the chariot race happens in the first half of the picture. Right. So, you know, the, the, the highlight of the picture is in the middle. Well, in the Uncle Tom's Cabin narrative, the escape over the ice flows happens in the first third of the narrative. 
So they had to rework it a bit uh, to give the film a climax, and by doing that, they set it during the Civil War, so that uh, Sherman's march to the sea happens at the same time as the rescue of Eliza from Simon Legree. And by making the Union Army the hero, they effectively lost the entire southern market. But yeah, it's interesting. I was reading in your in your book here his his idea was the northern character. You know, the, the, the bad characters were northerners who came into it essentially as speculators on human flesh, and that the the southerners, you know, had this paternal attitude toward their slaves that you know that was basically benevolent, which in the book. Uh, you know, she she goes to the trouble of of basically blasting that one right at the beginning because we get, you know, the family is supposedly benevolent, but as soon as they run into the least little bit of financial trouble, oh well, we got to sell certain family members who happen to be a different color. Right, and if you remember from Gone with the Wind, um, I believe it's after the war. There's the sequence where the carpetbaggers right uh, down, and it's all the bad people are from the north. Yeah, so, I mean, that seems to have been sort of the price of thinking that you're going to market to the South is that you you basically have to take the sting out of Uncle Tom's cabin. Yes. Universal didn't own uh, many theaters, and even the theater in New York where it premiered was, was leased. They didn't own it outright. So they weren't able to kind of force it into the programs. They had to sell it to exhibitors, and... Um, as a result, the only, you know, the, the picture did not um, really do very well, either with the big city audiences or, uh, but the small towns loved it, absolutely loved it, because it delivers in um, both the uh, iconic scenes and the spectacular scenes. And seen today, it's actually a lot of fun if you don't think too hard about all of the, um, you know, subtext Right. Uh, and it's been stripped out of the novel. Well, let's talk about the characters a little bit. I mean, it, it's a real grab bag. I mean, Uncle, you know, the, the term Uncle Tom obviously is, is dismissive toward a certain type of, you know, too good to be true black character. But in the novel, Tom has a sort of Christ like dignity, even uh, as he's uh, killed by Simon Legree. And I feel that comes through pretty well. I mean, James B. Lowe, who who plays Uncle Tom, you know, brings it as much a dignity as you're going to find in the 1920s, when obviously there's basically no sense sensitivity to that on the part of white America at all. Uh, then on the other hand, you have uh, you know Topsy, who is pretty much straight out of a minstrel. Yes, and that's one of the the really cringe-inducing sequences where you have two young girls, the white girl Eva. Um, who's the daughter of the family and is saint-like and um, dies at the end of Act Two, and Topsy, who's the mischievous black girl, which in this case is played by Mona Ray in blackface, who idolizes the character of Eva, but isn't able to tell that or to figure out that Eva is, you know, good because she's good. She's not good because she's white. Yeah. And it's painful to watch the black character just wishing that she could be white so that she could be good like Eva. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's an irony maybe that you could take from that today that I don't think was it, it was necessarily there in the attitudes of people in the 1920s. 
Um, but let's talk about Tom. I mean, how do you feel about James B. Lowe's portrayal? Oh, I think it's a very strong portrayal, and in many ways he's, he's the anchor that the entire picture is built around because of the, the integrity of the part. The first actor who got the part um, was fired because he was advocating that the um, uh, character that he was being asked to play was too demeaning. Uh, James Lowe managed to bring that dignity to the character and apparently waited until the, he was in um, too many scenes to be fired before uh, pushing back hard against uh, Pollard over the way his character was being presented. And I think that he, he acquits the character well, and he's the one uh, uh, truly strong African-American character. The other, um, your uh, Margarita Fisher's character of Eliza, is in that um, uh, category, which at the time was called mulatto, right. which was uh, mixed race. So they were presenting it very much as if there were three races on screen rather than two. James B. Lowe, who played Tom, um, it turned out, I mean, he got good notices. It turned out to be the last movie he made. What happened there? Um, I don't know. But certainly the word would get around if people were seen as being difficult. And I think that many actors found that... um, it was much better working on stage than it was in the straitjacket of the Hollywood studios, particularly if the only parts you were going to be offered were uh, servants and other things like that. Sure. And whereas you could play leads on stage. Some people like, I don't know, Mantan Moreland um, did okay with that. Others like the black actor Rex Ingram, you know, would only accept roles in which they did have a certain dignity. And my impression is that James B. Lowe um, was much happier on stage. All right, so 19 months in production, you say. $2 million, the uh, the advertising said, which apparently is a slight exaggeration, but not by much. And the uh, they had to, you know, they had various calamities during production. It's just one of those productions that never seemed to end, much like Ben-Hur. Uh, Pollard was actually disfigured by his exposure to the cold during it. Uh, he lost a number of teeth and uh, they became infected. Um, and so, you know, it limps to being finished with the, the ice flow sequence being made of shots taken, you know, many months apart in two different places entirely and stuff like that. Um, how do you feel that it, it came together in the end? Well, at the premiere it didn't come together all that well. And there's comments uh, that I uncovered from the New York Censorship Board reporting back to Carl Lemley that audiences felt that there was too much violence and that the South was not presented fairly. Um, And then that was the original premiere version that ran around 140 minutes, basically two and a half hours. And then uh, when the film went into general release, it had a movie tone score which is the version that's on the Blu-ray. And uh, it had gone through a bit more editing, and the results uh, were good. They finally got the picture to work, basically by uh, presenting it before audiences and figuring out which sequences audiences liked and didn't like, and got it down to about two hours. And that's the general release version, not the roadshow version, which is what's on the disc. 
And I think that it plays um, really well, and that it plays on, um, you know, the, the film, the stand, previous release, DVD release, it played on uh, Turner Classic Movies, and um, works well. And it's has the some of the style of the late 20s silent, but it has the sensibility of an early 20s uh, silent film. And the action sequences play very well, and the rest of it, um, you, you have the scope and scale of the filming on the Mississippi River, lots of expensive sets, lots of extras, and um, showing that Universal could pull off a large-scale uh, production, just not at a price where they could recover their costs. Right. Now... They wound up not owning the negative because... Yeah, it was basically the um, an element on the film ended up uh, getting with a state's rights distributor who thought that they could uh, make some money off of it. So Under the Radar released it uh, to theaters because there, in the 1950s there was a very successful reissue with The Birth of a Nation, and they thought that this could reach that same audience. Uh, Universal eventually caught up with them and sold the copyright in 1958 to a reissue distributor, Colorama Features, who cut out all the titles, added narration by Raymond Massey, and uh, released it theatrically uh, to drive-ins as well as to schools. And uh, that version actually plays pretty well. And I remember seeing it when I was a kid and thinking that the image quality of that Uncle Tom's Cabin was, was just uh, remarkable because most of what I'd seen to that point were murky prints of silent pictures. And when I was tracking down the film, I found the negative at Movie Lab, and then I was able to follow a, a chain of, uh, of uh, acquaintances to track down the successor and in interest to Colorama Features and buy the, the copyright. And that got it back in, into release through Kino. Uh, 20 years ago, when this film was first uh, rediscovered. This film and another film that I worked on, uh, The Silent Peter Pan, reminded me that these films don't restore themselves. These films don't rediscover themselves, and that it's the work of uh, people like David Shepard and Sears Bromberg and others that have gotten um, most of the classic films back into distribution that uh, we're able to see. And you know, thanks heavens for Warner Archive and the MGM and Warner Brothers films that they pulled back. But if not for Kino and uh, Kino's Don Krim, who ran the company at the time, these films would not have been out there. And that it's important uh, both that the studios preserve and restore their films as well as there be room for individuals to, to do it also. And I think we're in the golden age of Blu-ray, and Blu-ray probably won't be around in five or ten years, but we'll look back like in the last days of Laserdisc when there were all sorts of amazing titles coming out, that this is the, the opportunity to get these films and to treasure them, because ten years from now, you're not going to be able to buy a Blu-ray. There aren't going to be any new Blu-ray releases of anything. And the cost... Um, you know, for a company to put out a film for streaming is as much as it is for Blu-ray, but the revenue just won't be there. Uncle Tom's Cabin is an important film. 
and it's a representative film from Universal, which is a studio that we don't know a whole lot about, but thanks to The Man Who Laughs and The Last Warning and some of the work that Universal has been doing in the last couple of years, we are getting to see some of those Universal films of the 1920s, and they have a certain charm to them, and it's interesting to see the results of what was basically a family business with Carl Lindley at Universal, as opposed to some of the corporations with Wall Street money, such as uh, MGM and Paramount and Fox, which were much more kind of cookie-cutter productions unless uh, you had a particularly inspired director in place. And they would never have let something like uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin be produced because they would have gone to the exhibitors and checked in advance to see whether there was a market for the film. And Carl Emley was much more for going with his gut in terms of what uh, who he trusted on the lot to deliver and what he thought audiences would want to see. That's music from the original movie tone score for the 1927 version of Uncle Tom's Cabin by Erno Repé. Links for that version will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, J.B. Kaufman, Donna Hill, and David Pierce. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That helps others discover what we're up to here. Thanks. My name is Zunard J5-9 Doric 47. Get me the Pentagon. Red priority. You, you're a cat. While you and I are talking this very minute, some slimy, green-headed, 12-legged creep could be crawling into the White House. Mm-hmm.